Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. industrial size smoker from the Gethsemane Lutheran Church and School uh, in Maplewood, you need to return it. All right? That's my uh, PSA this morning for those of you living in the Twin Cities. Someone stole an industrial size smoker from the Gethsemane Lutheran Church. They were using it to feed dozens of uh, hungry people in their neighborhood every week. They've been using it to provide really good food. Um, I like the way they describe this culturally specific food to our neighbors um, who live around us. Um, We are in one of the five largest foods deserts in the country. We were using the smoker to feed our neighbors Um, during uh, during the. Well, what I will call the unrest following the death of George Floyd last summer, this particular church served between 1300 and 1500 people every single day. Every single day. Um, And how did they cook a lot of that food? Well, they used this industrial size uh, smoker that was parked in their parking lot and somebody stole it last Wednesday, which meant that on the 4th of July, they couldn't feed their neighbors, which was their what was their plan. So if you took it, it's time to return it. If you know who took it, it's time to get them to return it. That is all on that. All right. Uh, Myanmar. Myanmar, halfway around the world. Um, I know that you say to yourself, Carmen is focused on what's happening uh, around the world today. Um, Let me draw your attention to Myanmar. Um, I'm just going to read the lead of this particular article. The clandestine clinic was under fire, the medics inside in tears, hidden away in a Myanmar monastery. This safe haven had sprung up for those who were injured while protesting the military's overthrow of the government. Now those security forces have discovered its location A bullet struck a young man in the throat as he defended the door, and the medical staff then tried frantically uh, to stop his hemorrhaging. Um, In Myanmar, the military has now declared war on healthcare workers. Doctors um, who were early opponents of the takeover in February are now being arrested, attacked, and killed. They have been dubbed enemies of the state. So uh, if you think about what ordinarily happens in war, which is those who have a Red Cross um, those who are functioning as medical personnel are often considered, you know, outside of the, you know, like you can't attack them. And the military in Myanmar, as a part of its um, overthrow of the government there, is now openly attacking members of the medical community. Um, and so let's be lifting up that situation with continued prayer. Next up, I've got Dr. Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We're going to talk about a range of medical headlines. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mike. 
Dr. Jeffrey Barrows serves as Senior Vice President of Bioethics and Public Policy for the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He's an obstetrician gynecologist. He's an author, an educator, a medical ethicist, a speaker, and a frequent uh, guest here on Mornings with Carmen. Jeff, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be with you again. It's good to have you. It's good to have you. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, we had the Supreme Court of the United States weigh in on the Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia case. Um, Remind us what that case was about. And then what do you see um, as the religious liberty implications uh, of that case? Yeah, I think it's important for us to talk about this, especially as we just finished celebrating this weekend our our country's founding. And, of course, one of the major liberties that our founding fathers established was the freedom for us to practice our religion as as we are called by God to do so. And and so this is important to us as Christians. It's important to us as Christian healthcare professionals. And it's it's really important to all of us who want to live out our lives in obedience to Christ. So this case involved a faith-based organization in the city of Philadelphia that had been serving the foster youth in Philadelphia for several decades. They had been certifying uh, foster parents and and providing foster kids into those homes, helping the foster kids get established. And in 2018, one of the leaders of that faith-based organization was in an interview with the newspaper in, in Philadelphia and made the comment that they would not certify same-sex marriages. Now, they'd never had anybody approach them for certification. There had been there over 20 different certifying agencies in Philadelphia. But the city of Philadelphia didn't like that comment. They actually began to investigate, and they found out that, in fact, that was the case. And so the city of Philadelphia decided to, to give this faith-based organization an ultimatum saying to them, either you will certify same-sex marriages as foster parents or you will lose the license to serve foster kids in the city. So it was more important to the city of Philadelphia that they have this this, uh, this stringent rule uh, than actually serving foster kids in Philadelphia. So the faith-based organization fought it. They lost at the federal district court level and at the appeals court level. But as you mentioned, at the Supreme Court, uh, there was a 9-0 decision in favor of the foster care agency. Now, so that's great news. I mean, a 9-0 unanimous opinion is always good news for those that, that win. It sends a powerful message to the lower courts and uh, to other agencies. Don't, don't get in the way of religious liberty. But it was a little disappointing to those of us that were watching the case because it wasn't that the justices made a very strong opinion and said, you will not limit religious liberty. Rather, they made the 9-0 decision on the basis that the city of Philadelphia was granting exemptions to other agencies, so they should also grant an exemption to this faith-based agency. So it was a little bit of a mixture. Uh, Overall, it was good. Uh, we're, We're certainly glad to see it. It could have gone the other way. And that would have been terrible news for us as Christians. But I will add that we're also a little disappointed because Friday the Supreme Court refused to hear the case 
of Arlene's Flowers, which is a case out in Washington State where a florist by the name of Baronel Stutzman uh, had refused to create a special flower arrangement for a same-sex marriage. And she was sued by uh, the state of Washington, had gone to the Washington Supreme Court, had lost, and had appealed to the Supreme Court. And they, unfortunately, refused to hear the case. So I think for us, in summary, as Christians, we need to continue to watch this area very carefully and very closely because our religious freedoms are still under attack. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been seeing some headlines, Jeff, uh, just recently this summer about a rise in domestic sex trafficking of minors in the United States. Um, I know that this is a point of passion for you. Um, Can you take a minute to just address the topic of domestic sex trafficking of minors in the U.S. and maybe just remind those in the healthcare profession and on the front lines how to identify those who are being trafficked and and how the rest of us in the general population might help. Certainly, Carmen. Uh, Domestic minor sex trafficking is uh, another term for commercial sexual exploitation for children. And under federal statute, any child under the age of 18 that is involved in any form of sexual exploitation, whether it be production of pornography, stripping, or prostitution, they are automatically a victim of child sex trafficking. And we estimate that they're probably the numbers are somewhere in the hundreds of thousands. It's hard to get a good number on it. And a lot of the kids actually come out of foster care. And that's that's a good good point because these kids are typically in homes where they have been sexually abused, uh, they have been neglected, and they are taken advantage of by traffickers who then sell them on the internet it continues to rise. Uh, it's found in every major city, in my mind, uh, with more than a 50,000 population. Healthcare professionals are one of the few professions that regularly encounter these kids. And the way to look for them is uh, I, I remember once that I was taking an average history as an OBGYN, and I had a 16 year old girl in my office. And one of our routine questions is, How many sex partners have you had? That's important because of pap smears and various other things. And this girl, 16 years old, her answer to me was more than 500. And there's only one way that a 16-year-old girl gets more than 500 sex partners, and that's through commercial sexual exploitation. So we can get clues in healthcare that these kids are being exploited. They'll have multiple uh, sexually transmitted infections. Frequently, they'll be traumatized. You'll see signs of trauma, uh, signs of of neglect, uh, lack of, of good diet, that type of thing. So it's important for healthcare professionals to begin asking about this and then providing them a safe space uh, in terms of if they want to come out because frequently they are they are um, psychologically controlled by their traffickers so they don't want to come out immediately out of the scenario because they've also been abused. So for the, the non-healthcare professional, it's important to be aware of what's happening in your city, provide any kind of support you can to a group that's trying to reach out to these poor victims. Uh, I started a home in Ohio called Gracehaven, and uh, we are always looking for not just financial help, but also help along the various lines in terms of the work that we do. Yeah, I appreciate your um 
engagement on this topic and sharing with us. Let's take a very brief break. When we come back, um, Dr. Barrows and I are going to talk about a couple of other headlines, some recent developments in cancer treatment and a link between fried foods and sugary drinks with sudden cardiac death. Those stories up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Um, Jeff, let's talk about some recent developments in cancer treatments. What do we need to know? Well, it's it's an exciting field. In fact, a lot of researchers for many years struggled uh, to really make some good progress. But uh, lately, they're, they're having some great successes. Uh, just a reminder for your listeners, you know, about 40% of us will get a diagnosis of cancer in our lifetime. And so it's is a critical area. But I, I think the, the biggest leaps have occurred in what we call immunotherapy, which is using our body's immune system to actually fight cancer. So for, for so many decades, we have been dependent upon radiotherapy using, using radiation or chemotherapy using chemicals that, that kill fast-growing cells and, of course, cause all kinds of side effects. But now, especially with malignant melanoma, which is the most frightening skin cancer, uh, the scientists have been able to develop a new type of therapy that, that they have created a specialized immune protein. It's a, a protein that they, they give to patients, and what it does is it attaches to the malignant melanoma cells themselves. And then it's kind of like a, uh, a, a traffic cop that tells the, our body's immune system, specifically our natural killer cells, to come and attack that malignant melanoma cell. And it's very, very effective. They found that, that patients who had advanced malignant melanoma um, they uh, achieved a one-year survival, and 65% of those patients were normally the one-year survival would be between 5 and 10%. So very promising, exciting area. And something related to that is also another protein which uh, 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 just they, they, they take these natural killer cells and they, they change them, they take them out of the body, they, they attach a special protein to them that kind of makes them stronger, more effective at fighting particular uh, leukemia, uh, leukemia type of cancer cells. And this also has been very effective in focusing the attack at the cancer cell itself, not only in increasing the, the cure rate, but also markedly diminishing the side effects from cancer therapy. So these are just a couple of exciting areas where they're making progress in this terrible fight against cancer. I think that's thrilling news. And um, like you, I mean, every single year I have friends and members of my family who receive a cancer diagnosis. Increasingly, you know, that is not a death sentence. Um, thanks yes. you know, thanks be to God and thanks be to the the kinds of advances that we're talking about today in terms of cancer treatment. Um, let's talk about this link between fried foods, sugary drinks and sudden cardiac death. This is kind of interesting. 
Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people that that are listening may be suddenly feeling a little guilty because if they were like me, they were celebrating the 4th of July at a small town uh, fair where you have the ultimate in fried foods. But we're really talking about uh, long-term diet. You know, what's the average diet that we have during our regular week? And, you know, it's so important to talk about diet because this is one way that we can either shorten our life or we can lengthen our life. And as a Christian, I am so, it's just exciting to me to recognize that the most healthy diet we can eat is the same diet that Jesus ate. And it's called the Mediterranean diet, and that's what Jesus ate. And it, it's, its emphasis is on fruits and vegetables and whole grains and avoiding processed foods and white bread and that type of thing. But an, a recent uh, report in the New England Journal of Medicine what they did is they took two groups of people that were at high risk of having a cardiac uh, event, like a heart attack. And they may be at high risk because of diabetes or smoking or high blood pressure, obesity, whatever. And, and they put these two different, uh, they divided it into two different groups. And they put one group on the Mediterranean diet and they put the other group on a just a low calorie diet and then they could eat whatever they wanted. And those that were eating the Mediterranean diet, the same diet that Jesus ate, had one-third less cardiac events and strokes than those who had just the normal low-calorie diet. So it's, it's, it's important for us as Christians to remember that and to recognize that we can control, in a way, how long we live and how healthy we will be simply by what we eat. Okay, we have a question about the relationship between alcohol and sugary drinks. Is bourbon a sugary drink? Now, let me just go ahead and say we're having this conversation on Christian radio. And so for those of you like me who don't drink alcohol, just take this as important educational information. Uh, the short answer is yes, bourbon contains carbohydrate and sugars and a lot of calories. There has been a relationship found between a moderate intake of alcohol, specifically red wines rather than the hard liquors, and a decrease in cardiac events. And again, it goes back, Jesus drank wine, Jesus turned water into wine, and, and so we can biblically go back and say, hmm, there's, there, maybe there's something there that if those who feel comfortable drinking alcohol, uh, a little glass of red wine every day actually may be beneficial for your heart. All right, friends, a little glass of red wine like that that they drank in the days of Jesus, um, right? We're not talking about uh, having a fifth of bourbon um, every day with your ribs and mac and cheese. So that's the conversation that we need to be having about what we put into our bodies. Remember, remembering that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We want to be good stewards of what God has given to us um, that we might be useful to him as instruments of his mm. of his grace in in the midst of the world that he so loves. Um, Jeff, as always, it's a delight to talk with you. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Want to direct our listeners to the resources that you have available at cmda.org. Um, for those of you who are a part of the medical and dental uh, community at any and every level, CMDA is a great place for you to connect. Um, and for the rest of us, it's a great place to visit when we're trying to think through the medical ethical issues and concerns of our day. So, Jeff, thank you for uh, your role at CMDA and for joining us today on air. That's great to be with you again, Carmen. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, this next conversation is for anyone and everyone who is listening who regards themselves as a Christian. Yep. Everybody who uses the term Christian to self-identify is hereby on notice that the next conversation with George Yancey on his book, One Faith No Longer, is for us. This is a conversation about where we are in the United States of America in terms of the diversity of people who use the term Christian to self-identify and what we mean by that term when we use it and how we view others who use that term but don't mean what we mean when we use the term. Yep, the divisions among us as Christians and whether or not we have arrived at what J. Gresham Machen observed nearly 100 years ago Uh, as two different faiths. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lucado. If anyone had a reason to be anxious, it was the Apostle Paul. Envision an old man as he gazes out the window of a Roman prison, half blind, squinting just to read, awaiting trial before the Roman emperor. His future is as gloomy as his jail cell, yet... To read his words, you'd think he had just arrived at a Jamaican beach hotel. His letter to the Philippians bears not a word of fear or complaint, not one. Instead, he lifts his thanks to God and calls on his readers to do the same. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul's challenge is a decision deeply rooted in the confidence that God exists, that he is in control, and that he is good. Rejoice in the Lord always. You can't run the world, but you can entrust it to God. This is Max Lucado. George Yancey. He's a professor of sociology at Baylor University. He is uh, one of the co-authors of the book we're going to talk about today, One Faith No Longer. Dr. Yancey, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me, Carmen. Okay, so um, I lived this because I was in the PCUSA um, during the years um, that she was trying to determine which direction she was going to go as a denomination in terms of progressive or what you describe as conservative um, Christianity and ethics related to it. So I, this is my, your book is my lived experience. So let me just ask this question. What does the term Christian mean in America today? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it means different things to different people. I think most people, when they hear Christian, think about probably what they think about as conservative Christians. Uh, but obviously it's a definition that, that can vary according to each individual. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I have no definite definition of Christian for Americans. I can say as, as a sociologist, all I have to say is someone who says they're a Christian, they're a Christian. But of course that, that lacks certain meaning in the real world. Right. So when the secular, if the term is used in, you know, in secular culture or in secular media, it does tend to mean 
the group of people who in your book we might identify as the conservative Christians. So now distinguish for us between these conservative Christians and progressive Christians. Okay. So progressive Christians, they identify as Christians. So by, as a sociologist, they're Christians. But our main argument in the book is that uh, conservative Christians basically root their beliefs, their, their answers to the question of meaning in their interpretation of the Bible uh, and of Scripture. And from then they go on to interpret the rest of the world. Progressive Christians tend to root their meaning, their, their, how they see reality, in an ethnic system of social justice. And then from there they go on to interpret reality. They use a lot of the same terms. For example, both of them will talk about hell. For conservative Christians, when they think about hell, they're thinking about the, you know, the existence of however you want to describe the place where you go if you're not saved and if you're dead. You know, if you want to describe it as torment or ex- being extinguished, or, you know, there, there's variations in the interpretation, but the basic idea is still the same. But progressive Christians talk about hell, although some of them may think about that interpretation. What they're really more likely to talk about is is the existence today, uh, that, uh, that the incompleteness of our society today, the, the lack of justice, the lack of tolerance today. So they use the same term, but they come to their interpretation of that term is different from one another. And that's what I mean when they identify as Christians, but because they center their values, they center the way they answer questions and meanings in different sources, they really are operating as two different religions. Which is an observation that J. Uh, Gresham Machen started making a hundred years ago now. Um, so for those of us who come out of a Presbyterian stream of things, um, we would recognize Christianity and liberalism from 1923, and we would recognize the observations that Machen was making in that day in terms of where people were grounding their faith claims. Um, and, and what you're talking about is sourcing. Um, I think that's an excellent word. So if if the source of the definitions that I'm using for the, the, sh- the shared terms, um, heaven and hell, uh, grace, even the church, resurrection itself, like if I'm going to use a source for those terms, I'm going to rely on the Bible for uh, the definition of those terms and, as you say, the interpretation of reality through the Bible's definition of those terms. That is very, very different than a progressive Christian um, is the way in which a progressive Christian is going to approach those very same conversations. Yeah, I believe so. And I think when you look at Machem's argument, it's based very much in theological argument, which which is fine. What we've done is we've sociologically looked at this. And so with quantitative and qualitative data, I think we've documented, for example, we've documented just how strongly progressive Christians outgroup conservative Christians and and the reasons why they do that through our qualitative work. So I think what we've done is we've documented sociologically. So it's not just about a theological argument that there really is a, a, a different perspective of reality on conservative progressive Christians. And to be clear, it's not always that clear cut. Someone may, you know, I can imagine there are people who are in the middle who may take elements of both of those and, and create their own 
sense of their own faith. But there definitely is a conservative Christian subculture, a progressive Christian subculture, and they are not the same subcultures, and they don't always get along with one another. Okay, so let's talk about that, because I, the, the quantitative approach, the sociological <clears throat> approach is, um, is excellent. Um, talk about what you discovered in terms of sort of what binds a group together as progressive or conservative Christians? Where, what are the different factors maybe that bind those together as a group? Yeah, so when we looked at the quantitative data, at first I thought, okay, this is pretty clear cut. Conservative Christians base their identity on theological issues, and progressive Christians base their identity on political issues. And I say that because when it came to saying who was in your in or out group, conservative Christians, it was based on theology, Progressive Christians are based on politics. But then as we dive down deeper into some qualitative work, we discovered it's not just about politics with progressive Christians. What drives our politics is this adherence to notions of social justice, values of tolerance, values of inclusion, values of taking care of the marginalized, that these things are driving their politics. And so it's even more basic values for them. Now, what people may argue is that, well, are they really tolerant? Are they really inclusive? And I think that's a fair critique to make. But remember, just as conservative Christians have different interpretations of the Bible, and they argue over those interpretations, one can argue that progressive Christians have different interpretations of intolerance and inclusion, and they argue over that. Thus, some progressive Christians are pro-life in the way that they see things, and others are not because their interpretation of what it means, what justice means, is different on the abortion issue. So, but the, the key is that both of them, because Christians and progressive Christians, have a source of where they get their sense of ultimate reality. And that source is different from one another. And that's why my co-author and I really do see these as two different distinct religions at this, at this point in time. All right, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, my guest is George Yancey. We're talking about uh, his book, One Faith No Longer. We'll be right back. Today, I'm hungry and I'm ready for change. I run too far to still be the same. All right, continuing my conversation now. Uh, with Dr. George Yancey from Baylor University. We're talking about a book that he co-authored along with Help Me With Ashley's Last Name. Quincic. Quincic. All right. Yep. And the book is One Faith No Longer. Um, this is a wonderful sociological examination of where we are right now at this point in time um, as Christians in the American culture. And so you might, uh, you might describe yourself as a Christian, and by that, you might mean what I mean, or you might mean something very different than what I mean when I use the term. And so we're, um, we're talking about that, and we're talking about what that might then look like going forward. So, Dr. Yancey, let's, um, let's take the next step, uh, and that is the having arrived at the place where we really have two groups of people using the same term to define themselves, the term being Christian, but who really are two different religions. Um, and you anticipate in the book this permanent parting of ways between the two groups, that they will become two separate re religious bodies. Um, I think that for people who have come out of former mainline denominations, 
one way or another, they already recognize that those splits are taking place. Those divisions among us um, are being concretized. Um, what do you kind of see going forward in terms of how that might work itself out? Yeah, uh, and that's interesting because I think you're right. I think people who grew up in a mainline denomination or are progressive, because some mainline denomin- congregations are actually conservative Christians. So let's say they, they came out of a progressive Christian environment. They probably do see the split more intensely. However, for the most part, it is the progressive Christians who better understand that these are two distinct religions than the conservative Christians. A lot of conservative Christians see us as a Christian nation and see a sort of unified church. And, and their attitude is, well, yeah, I may not agree with all Christians, and, and maybe they're not even as good of a Christians, but they're still Christians. And what they mean by that is they're still with us. A lot of conservative Christians think that. Progressive Christians don't tend to think that. They more clearly outgroup conservative Christians than vice versa. And so as it concerns the fact that we do see the split happening, it is recognized more by progressive Christians than conservative Christians. And I will say that, I don't know if I want to say most, but many conservative Christians are under a mistaken impression that they have some sort of allyship with progressive Christians, whereas progressive Christians definitely do not see that at all. Okay, so let's um, let's fast forward, because how, I mean, in your view as a sociologist, like, how does the American experiment look different when Christianity is not in any way, shape, or form like a unified or unifying cultural influence. Yeah, I think we're discovering that today. I think we're moving into that. I think we've moved into a post-Christian world. And part of the reason why we're a post-Christian world is that to the degree that Christianity ever was truly unified, and I'm not sure, I'm not enough of a historian to say that I'm comfortable with that, but if it was, it clearly is not today. And as a group that is not unified, it impacts the sort of power and influence Christianity has in our society. If you have one faction of Christians who are advocating for something and they're being opposed by a, a different faction of Christians, opposed powerfully by a different faction of Christians, it means that they have less power, less influence, less authority in our society. What does that mean? You know, that's a really great question. I think a post-Christian world isn't going to mean we're going to turn into something like Europe. That's possible, maybe a a weaker form of what we see in Europe. It doesn't mean that other religions are going to become more prominent and perhaps even replace Christianity as as the majority religion, or perhaps a secularism does that. I think all those are possible. I I don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. I do work to find out what's happening right now or in the past. But I think we should recognize that the Christian world that a lot of people grew up in is not here, and will it come back? We don't know, but it does not appear it's going to come back in the near future. So, um, talking about the conversations that we have today with one another, um, I'm I'm always encouraging people to ask others what they mean when they use a term that might be a term that has multiple definitions or meaning. And so, um, in terms of if you were going to do that, if you were going to be listening for terms that are used differently um, across this ideological divide, 
what might some of those terms be that I'd be listening for that I would then want to ask the other person, okay, I need you, I, I, want, to, I want to be sure that I understand what you're saying when you use that term. What are those terms I should be listening for? Yeah, I, I think you would want to listen for how they, I mean, they may use the same term like justice. And it may even have similar me- meaning for, for, for some conservative Christians as for progressive Christians. But I think you want to listen for what is the source of justice. For a lot of conservative mm. Christians, they do talk about justice, and they talk about justice in ways that you might hear from progressive Christians. Some of them do, not all, but some of them do. But for them, the source goes back to their interpretation of the Bible. For progressive Christians, justice, the way they interpret it, is a source in and of itself, or tolerance, or inclusiveness. That that in and of itself is a source of legitimation. And so I think you want to listen carefully for that if you're trying to figure out whether someone's a progressive Christian or conservative Christian. Or again, the example of hell. I think that's another thing. I think another key is how do they talk about other religions? Progressive Christians tend to see other religions as similar paths or alternate paths to a similar goal. So whereas we interviewed both Christians on Muslims. Progressive Christians see Muslims, Islam, as a similar path to still this goal, because their goal is more of inclusion and social justice. Conservative Christians don't tend to see this. They see Islam as an alternate religious belief system, and for many, if not most conservative Christians, a belief system that goes uh, that goes away from the truth. And so how they talk about other religions, I think, is another key indicator as to whether or not uh, groups are progressive Christians or not. And finally, and here's this is an interesting finding that I did not anticipate going into it. Progressive Christians don't tend to have a lot of friends who are who are Christians unless they already agree with them as far as theologically and their outlook. Conservative Christians tend to have a lot of Christian friends of different outlooks. And so how they talk about other Christians, I think, is another key. Are they more disparaging of other Christians than than others? Now, not, none, no one of these signs is an absolute sign that's always true one way or the other. But those are indicators, I think, of when it's not someone is a progressive Christian or conservative Christian. It's really fascinating research. It's great conversational fodder. It really helps us think about ourselves and you know, where we are at this point um, in history. And, and I think, you know, it has the potential to to help us imagine a future that we want to live into versus one we just sort of happen into because we weren't paying attention along the way. So thank you for helping us pay attention to ourselves um, and to one another, uh, recognizing that the term Christian is used by people who may operate out of an utterly different worldview than we do. Um, so, uh, Dr. George Yancey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the book, One Faith No Longer. Really appreciate your contribution to the conversation today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, that was fascinating. I hope that you are as intrigued as I am um, by looking at the sociological realities of Christians in America today. I hope you are as intrigued as I am by the headlines of the day and as challenged as I am to bring the mind of Christ to bear 
on what's going on um, in the world. Let's be praying the news today in our own local communities and in situations happening around the world. God is sovereign. Uh, He is on the throne. He is working out his perfect will um, in and among us and through us today. So let's go forth and be ambassadors of the king and the kingdom that that really realities here on earth might be a little bit more like they are in heaven today by our witness, by our testimony, by our work. Let us be instruments of God's grace today. Um, How is it that God might play your life as an instrument of his goodness and grace in the world that he so loves? What kind of instrument would you be? I want to be a harp or a harpsichord or a trumpet or a drum I got a kid who wants to be a xylophone for sure for sure what kind of instrument do you want to be in the hand of the Lord today let the master play you for all your worth and glorify thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio if you haven't you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play music app That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.